PR manager passionate about helping get indie artists cut through, the UK's Debbie Ball has developed an expertise in how best to work with artificial intelligence to make new fans for music online. Now, also a digital humanities lecturer at King's College London and the University of Westminster, it's led to a fascination with the role of AI in music creation. The influence of AI on how we create and listen to music is growing exponentially. Los Angeles-based app Make It, for example, allows you to create a song in under five minutes. You can create your own uncanny version of Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, correct the pitch, add effects, edit audio and mix in a few clicks. Ball's PR company Create Spark has worked with everyone from Katy Perry to Tame Impala. And she was recently at the Going Global Music Summit in Auckland, care of the British Council New Zealand. She spoke to Culture 101's Mark Amory about whether AI might be democratising music at the same time as it's cutting out the artist. Absolutely, but I think there's... um two things in direct conflict here is the language that a lot of the Silicon Valley companies use about their products ties into sort of values of, um, you know, democratic liberal values that came out of the sort of 60s hippie movement that then fed into, um, you know, a lot of people from that generation then went into computer science as we know it now and started developing computers and um, gave birth to this whole industry and you know, the internet was essentially created as a very utopic, I suppose, product, if you want to call it that, um, to share knowledge and to improve understanding and share information and sort of make people more enlightened. So in one sense, these products can be a sort of a, a gateway to creativity and greater understanding of things, but in other senses, it can be I don't know. Yeah, the language and the uh, and the marketing that you surround the the launch of these products and sort of create this idea of like um, advancing creativity or um, bringing us close together in a community sense is contrasted against quite aggressive business models. They they appeal to our our desire to feel like these products are advancing us and making us more, um, you know, technologically literate and. Um, you know forward thinking and obviously people want to you know use these products and have a great thirst for technology and an enthusiasm for living in modern times but actually there's a lot behind the whole process of um, you know how they're datafying all of our interactions yes and you know and then essentially creating profiles that are fed into the advertising model and then retargeted back to us so I think, you know, we have to be a little bit cautious and um, think about how, you know, generative music programs could be another way of digitising another human process. Goodness gracious. Well, you're in a bit of an irony there, really, aren't you? Because you head up a PR company where, you know, your business is to to make sales for your artists, uh, but you're also thinking about how it affects the user. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of, I've kind of gone on to the other side when it comes to the academic, my, you know, the academic stuff and my studies. But then, I don't know. I mean, I've been lucky to have built a music PR career working mainly with independent labels, and you know, all sorts of artists, whether they're doing distribution deals and you know, essentially having their own label to you know, independent labels like Secretly Canadian. Yeah. Um, Warp and Mute Records and they have worked with some major labels 
suppose what I try to do now is I try to just think a bit more about how, you know, the sort of the platforms that I use and the sort of strategies that I want to put in place for my artists. And particularly, like I did a bit of social media management for two creation records bands that decided to, um, well, one was Teenage Fan Club, who have always been um, releasing new music. Um, and then the other was Ride, who made, who made a big comeback in 20, I think it was 2017. Yeah. And neither were that confident originally in using social media. So I ended up building a social media management section to my artist campaigns. <laughs> yes. We do some things sort of deliberately to sort of think about, you know, like, do we really need to do sponsored posts to give like Facebook more money and, you know. <laughs> It's it's changed so much, hasn't it, Debbie? I mean, I was just listening to an interview here with Slow Dive, who were over from the UK, and you know they were talking. You know, it's it's something you hear quite a lot from musicians. They were talking about, you know, how their children's generation have caught onto their music via TikTok, <clears throat> and yet that you know, they they're just staying away. Yeah, no, I mean, um, there's also you know, Slow Dive have benefited from that. I think the Cure had a similar moment. I know there's also this amazing built, um, band, post-punk band called Life Without Buildings from Glasgow. They had their TikTok. But you know what? Like these are all promotional tools and are all like based on a very aggressive algorithm. So, you know, if like you get the tagging right and it sort of catches fire and starts to like move through the feed, you can see how these things happen because they're all built on keeping us on the platform, like all of these um, apps and platforms are, are essentially built to keep us on the platform and keep generating data. From the promotion, they're wonderful, but from a sort of sociological, political angle, um, they're quite divisive. Yeah, gosh. I mean, the cynical old school of us say, well, can't I just go out and play to an audience and build a, you know, build a following from playing my music? And if it's good enough, it'll reach through. But it, it feels like there is so much there has to be so much more PR to get cut through now. Is is that is that true? Yeah, because, you know, like there's always been um, so many bands competing for people's attentions. We just now have high speed um, global tools at our disposal to like reach more people. So I think, yeah, you do. If it's a, you know, in, in Slow Dive's situation, I think they, they grasped very well the potential of social media to um, promote their music. And I know that, um, you know, an independent label called, you know, like Secretly Group, who they're part of, um, have a very good digital marketing team and are really, like, shit hot with, um, you know, playlist plugging and making sure that they're on um, the right playlists on Spotify and what have you. Yeah, it's... Is the way that it works now. I mean, but then, you know, some traits of the older way of doing things are still important. Like, you know, going to a gig is still an unbeatable, incredible experience. And I suppose it's a sort of flip round a bit more that before you would make a record and then you'd tour to sell more records, but now you tour to, um, yeah, 
Well you, well, you too are almost to escape AI, don't you? Because, I mean, it kind of brings us back to it that the algorithm, this is all kind of very al- algorithmically based, and I'm just thinking about how that's changed everything. But then again, back in the old FM 70s days, you know, the radio program and being king and being force-fed a lot of commercial music was another form of intelligence, wasn't it, in terms of the way music was heavily marketed at us. It's never been easy for the independents, I imagine. No, but I've I've got an interesting example actually of like how you know bands that have been sort of back like slow dive after a bit of a break have benefited from you know get getting younger audiences to their gigs. I mean, I was talking to Stereo Labs manager about their recent return to playing live and the rec- the issues that they did through Warp, and um. In, in America, particularly, um, the manager noticed that there was a lot of younger people in the audience. He always worked on the merch desk and he got them into conversation and said, oh, how come are you here? And, um, you know, Pharrell Williams has always been a very um, vocal fan of Stereolab. Huh. Um, huh. He had done had mentioned them on TikTok. It was somebody like Pharrell or Tyler, the creator, or one of those... Um, big pop artists and yeah it was something that spread through a shout out on tiktok that encouraged people to discover stereolabs music so you know i think you you basically sort of you think about how the industry used to work in sort of the record and live based model and then you think about how you can use these new tools to then encourage people to go out and buy the records or go to the gigs yeah and um I had a really good chat with Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concord. Oh, yes, he was on our show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. What a lovely man. And he said it's, he, he never really understood it um, about engaging properly. <laughs> Actually, I don't want to do him down. He, he, he realised the potential of using social media, and um, particularly, like, I think he mentioned Instagram um, when he was out on the road, and um, realised like, there, there is a way, it's, it's really great the way that you can build a relationship with people that want to regularly support you and come to your gigs. Um, and then he, through the like Insta story function, he could see how it would accumulate um, and sort of build up a sort of momentum through sharing um, people's stories on his own feed, you know, just dropping people a little message on like in the comments to say, thanks for coming and that sort of thing. It's about just, again, to go back to what we started talking about, it's about knowing how, you know, A, figuring out if you want to engage in a particular app or a platform or, you know, generative music program or and then deciding which ones you do, if you do want to engage, which ones you want to use and then deciding to use it well. I'm speaking to Debbie Ball, founder of PR firm CreateSpark, about the relationship between AI and music. Speaking of being in New Zealand, talking to Brett, I mean, did you get the sense from talking to people in the industry here that we're sort of up with the play in terms of this part of marketing? Or, or did you kind of feel you're coming to a place which is slow to catch up because it's still a bit of a backwater? Oh, no. like <laughs> Provocative um, question, I know, I know. The national characteristic is to lean towards self-deprecation. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, everybody was very clued up. And before I did my keynote, the sort of the opening presentation was by, um, is it APRA? The yes, yes. Yep, yep. Association. That's correct. And there was an amazing breakdown of like all the statistics that had come through about, you know, 
how you know the percentage of New Zealand artists that were being streamed within the sort of the international digital music scene. Yeah, it seemed like everybody was very engaged, very clued up. I was very overwhelmed um, in a good way about people coming up to me with with comments about my talk about AI music creation. I tried to make it as engaging as possible to sort of contextualise. It's a very common thing for there to be a, a lot of anxiety when there's new technological changes happening, you know, and it, it, it dates back to the age of Socrates. Oh. And then sort of, yeah, apparently Socrates was um, not impressed by the suggestion that you can write words down. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. yeah, that would have been a yeah. worry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Time. So he, he got very offended when, because um, he believed in the tradition of or- oratory and, you know, speaking in order to communicate information and tell stories. Yeah, so, yeah, even way back then, there was people getting upset about how to do things differently. So I just want to put things in context. Then there are the artists, aren't there, who can who, who tend to be progressive and kind of lead change. I'm thinking of Grimes was the example I was looking at, who has kind of basically declared that she'll make her voice available to anyone who wants to use it. You know, there's a lot of concern about piracy of people's voices and being manipulated. But basically, she's saying, well, you can take it, but then you can upload it to any streaming platform and basically you just pay me some royalties. I'm not sure if um, Grimes did this first, but um, there's an electronic artist called Holly Herndon who's been integrating AI programs into how she makes music for the past. I think she's been doing this since about 2019. Right. She's also, I found out um, Holly was also a student at Stanford, you know, a music and technology student. Oh, right. But, yeah, similarly to Grimes, Holly set up this platform called Holly Plus, where she's licensed her voice um, and like created, created like a digital twin of her voice. So you upload, I think you have to join um, her community as well. So she's created a little, her own social network. Um, and then, yeah, when you go to like hollyplus.com or whatever it is, um, there's an upload box and you upload an audio file and it's sent back to you in Holly's voice. And then I think she feeds it back through her community and there's a, they can vote, like the community can vote <laughs> on which one the most. Yeah, that's the word, isn't it, though, Debbie? Community is the word. It's like, it, rather than PR, it's how do you create your community? It's a little bit like what Brett McKenzie was saying. Oh, absolutely. But then, yeah, I think it's um, it's a very commonly used word to describe the, a place that people congregate online. But yeah, I mean, a community could be, you know, it could be a word that's interchangeable with fan base. I suppose maybe people want to make that extra sort of compensation to make people feel like they belong. Can I um, ask you about your PhD? If you can describe what you're what you're looking at in, in layman's ter- or layperson's terms. Yeah, absolutely. So how did I get on this particular path? I suppose it was through the social media management campaigns, and I was just looking at the way that people would react. Well, I'd heard that to... you were a little bit horrified by what happened with Cambridge Analytica, which Analytica, which really kind of took a lot of us by surprise. One of the, the main influences um, or inspirations for going and studying how these um, platforms and products are made 
Um, I, I suppose because I'd spent the broad part of 10 years working in digital marketing, um, I thought I knew how the internet worked. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And then to find out that um, essentially, you know, Facebook's how newsfeed algorithm could be manipulated. Actually, no, they well, they created um, a, an app, a personality test app, didn't they? It wasn't the, the algorithm that they manipulated, but that essentially then created data profiles to promote in people's feeds like vote leave content um and manipulate people's views on the upcoming brexit referendum and also they used it to help get trump into power as well in the u.s elections so how did that end up informing your you know where you are now in terms of looking at the way data gets used i suppose it just really opened my eyes to see how manipulative it could be and i've so i've gone from that sort of macro sort of motivation to looking at the way that design features are built and how that potentially changes our habits when we're um, using messaging apps. So I'm interested in how, I suppose it's UX, like UX design, how that is something that is developed in a certain way to get us to A, stay on the platform longer, but also um, how it reads our relationships with each other. You mean so, in terms of the, you, you, people are basically, aren't they, they're kind of gauging a picture of us from how long it takes for us to, what, open a message and how long we spend with that message. Is it that kind of behaviour? You got to that for me, yeah. So I'm looking at the, the read receipt, which is a design feature of um, messaging apps and interfaces. I just also noticed my own behaviour, like rather than it giving me some kind of comfort that I knew someone had read my message, if it was in a particularly time-specific situation or with a close friend that I was having, I don't know, quite a sort of close conversation with, um, it would make me, particularly if um, I didn't get a response in a time frame or I was left on read, as it's called. Yes. Um, I found that it would just make me way more anxious rather than giving me that reassurance that, that, you know, tick or check you receive as the read receipt when someone's looked at your message is meant to do. So um, I was interested in whether, you know, how these design features are actually built. And I found out not necessarily in a coding sense, like in a um, psychological persuasion technique sense, I found out that um, there was a course at Stanford University in persuasive tech that was being taught to app developers to essentially create platforms um, or apps that would keep people using them and create new habits and therefore they'd adopt the product. So that was all based on behaviorism techniques that were developed by a psychologist called B.F. Skinner, like 1930s onwards. So I thought if that is the case, that these design features are created with behaviorism techniques, then what is it actually having? What effect is it actually having on users? So I'm at halfway through the PhD and I'm building a research method, like a digital research method to get people to audit the read receipt and set up different scenarios where they message people under a time pressured scenario oh, right. or message people um, that they're like, you know, particularly close to 
Um, there's like five different setups, and then I will interview them afterwards and see how the read receipt mediated their communications and um, whether it sort of accrued some sort of like value system from their communications. So, yeah, hopefully I'll get to carry that out in the next year. But I'm also interested in the other side of the process. I'm I'm convinced that it might be a potential breach of our privacy and a greater one because I think that everything that's hosted on a server unless there's encryption involved is potentially something the company can gather data from. Yes. Um, I think the read receipt could also be a value metric for the companies to work out our likes and dislikes just in the same way that the like button works. So it could be quite a good revel like an important revelation to show how the platforms work. Because if if they're reading our data in private messaging, then that's a heinous breach of <laughs> our, our personal space. It does sound quite dystopian as well. I mean, for real, for real. And I mean, you know, what are the, are the positives that apart from revealing that? I mean, do you think there are, are ways for us to use this technology in ways that are for good if we can understand it better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is despite it having a, a dystopic, um, you know, sceptical approach, there is the desire for it to be used for great, for the greater good for people to make informed choices, essentially, and enlighten people about how the communication um, tools that they use in everyday life could be something um, a bit more sinister and um, less liberating than we <laughs> think they are. <laughs> <laughs> she's <is> laughing. 